Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Brian Lehrer's Daily Politics Podcast from WNYC Studios. It's Friday, September 23rd. Now that he's no longer in office, there have been a lot of stories coming out about Trump's presidency. There's a new book out that offers quite the detailed account, more than 650 pages of the four years of the Trump administration, and it's written by two of the most respected journalists in Washington. Here with me now are the co-authors of The Divider, Trump in the White House 2017 to 2021, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. Peter Baker is the chief White House correspondent for The New York Times, a political analyst for MSNBC, and the author of Days of Fire and The Breach. Susan Glasser is a staff writer at The New Yorker and author of its weekly Letter from Trump's Washington, as well as a CNN global affairs analyst. Peter and Susan also co-authored The Man Who Ran Washington, which was a New York Times bestseller. Hi there, Susan. Hi, Peter. Welcome back to WNYC. And I'm so glad both of you were able to join us today. Hey, thanks so much for having us. We're delighted to be with you. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, Great. So I, I, I want to get into the new book, of course, and we're going to tackle that. But I want to first just get some news out of the way so you can help us make sense of what happened Wednesday night in federal appeals court. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit blocked aspects of a lower judge's ruling, essentially allowing the Department of Justice to continue investigating a certain number of classified documents that the former president was keeping at his Mar-a-Lago estate. And two of the judges on the panel were actually appointed by Trump. So did I get all of this right? And can you, one of you guys give me a sense of why the court made this decision, what it might mean? Yeah, it's a complicated uh, legal situation, but basically the appeals court said that the lower court went way too far uh, on Trump's side in trying to hamstring the federal investigators. The, the appeals court said, no, the federal investigators still can go ahead and use these documents, these important classified documents as part of their investigation. That was the most important thing to the Justice Department. They're still going to have to go through the special master process who will look through the other documents to make sure there's nothing that the government shouldn't have. Uh, but that now frees the Justice Department to go ahead and you know proceed with this investigation. And the and this special master will now look at the other documents. Can you tell me, do you know a little background about the special master, Judge uh, Raymond Deary, and and um, what we should know about him and and what that process is going to look like? Well, it's a good question. The one salient takeaway I have is that uh, this is a classic example of Trump and his sort of bubble making a mistaken, I think, uh, uh, sense, right? The interesting thing is it was a Trump legal team that picked this uh, judge to be the special master. And the reason uh, the federal court went along with it is because he was the one that the Justice Department also agreed to. This is somebody uh, with a very good, you know, solid reputation as a jurist, uh, independent. Somehow the Trump people felt that because he was involved in an earlier case uh, that has been made much of in the kind of conspiracy theories uh, around the various investigations during the Trump presidency, that this was going to be a judge favorable to them. I think the early uh, read on that is that they were mistaken. And then that's because uh, the judge doesn't appear to be buying Trump's argument that Presidents can declassify documents just by thinking about them, which is what he said the other day uh, in an interview with Sean Hannity. They're calling that the mental telepathy uh, uh, codicil (laughs) of the Constitution, right? Uh, 
<laughs> wow. Maybe that'll be an amendment to the Constitution. So it, it appears, that, I mean, reading the tea leaves, that the special master is not in the bag for the former president. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. The, the special master has expressed uh, skepticism of the Trump team's arguments. At one point, said you can't have your cake and eat it too, in effect, that, you're, that they're trying to make contradictory arguments. It's also said a very aggressive uh, schedule for reviewing these documents in a quick, timely fashion rather than letting this drag on forever asked another judge, in fact, to help him. So I think that this is not what the Trump team expected or hoped for. And one other question on the news this week, uh, New York Attorney General Tish James announced the civil suit against um, Trump. I, I mean, is the liberal dream of the walls closing in on Trump finally coming through? Uh, is that is that what's happening here? Do you, do you see the walls closing in on him? You know, uh, beware of uh, predictions of this sort. I feel like for, right. uh, you know, the entire four years of the Trump presidency, his critics had this sort of fantasy of the transformative uh, knockout punch, right? That moment when he was going to be hauled out in an orange jumpsuit and handcuffs. And obviously uh, that wouldn't happen even if uh, Tish Jane succeeded in this because it is not a criminal case. She is making criminal referrals is what she said. But um, again, this is not a criminal case. Uh, it is, however, a serious, uh, uh, very frontal attack on the Trump organization, which is synonymous with Donald Trump. Let's be clear, you know, that the business uh, was was him and uh, that was how he saw it. And that's part of the mindset that we write about in the book, frankly, is the idea uh, of the hyper-personalization of any institution. That's how he mm -hmm. ran his business. And then he transferred that way of thinking to the White House and uh, thought that it was my generals and my military and uh, my Justice Department. And uh, so that's I, I think there's really a through line there. But the case is very much about Donald Trump, but it's not going to be the end. Right. And, and it's why, why isn't it criminal? Why? Why is it a civil case? It's just that what what the what the law and the evidence led them to? Or is it, is it a little bit of a safer bet for the state attorney general? Well, that's actually what the state attorney general is charged with doing. The, the state attorney general, for the most part, doesn't do criminal uh, matters, does. You know, the jurisdiction is generally civil. Uh, so okay. it's not it didn't fall under her ambit to do that. Now, some of these issues have been looked at in a criminal way by the Manhattan DA's office, which has not yet brought charges. And in fact, the Manhattan DA has expressed skepticism about this and that led to two of his prosecutors resigning in protest. So, you know, there is kind of a different point, a different point of view about whether this could actually be uh, adjudicated a violation of the law. We'll see how the courts respond. Susan and Peter, in the book, um, the book is described as the inside story of the four years when Donald Trump went to war with Washington from the chaotic beginning to the violent finale. And your book explains just how close the United States got to violence and an actual physical conflict with with North Korea. Uh, I mean, a, a possible nuclear war. Can Can you tell listeners about some of these more frightening revelations in your book? In many ways, I do think that the, the national security challenge posed by Donald Trump, the fact that actually the senior leadership of, of the United States military came to view the president of the United States in some ways as, as the greatest national security threat facing the country, 
obviously some of the most alarming reporting I think uh, Peter I has done in, in several decades of reporting here from Washington. And, you know, this was something I should point out that uh, became much more clear in the reporting that we did after Trump left office. The book is based on 300 original interviews that we began after his second impeachment. Uh, Amazing that we have to say that second impeachment, right? right? But of course, you know, we had a sense throughout the Trump presidency, many journalists did great work. Uh, We tried hard to break stories as well. We had a sense during the presidency of, close calls, right? We knew that Trump uh, was threatening to pull out of NATO. We knew, uh, you know, that there was fire and fury before there was the love affair with Kim Jong-un. But I think it's in doing this work and trying to put it all together that we we gained more appreciation, I certainly did, for how close some of these close calls were. And and one of the ones that does stick out for us is the North Korea situation that, you know, some of the top advisors to Trump in that period of time, like uh, late 2017, early 2018, particularly like January of 2018, might have been the high water mark when Trump, through a combination of recklessness, uh, ignorance, uh, and um, you know, kind of machismo, came very co- close. He he saw one of his favorite TV generals on Fox one day, and. Uh, essentially implying he thought that he wasn't tough enough. And he he literally demanded uh, that his uh, advisors pull all U.S. military dependents, uh, American dependents out of South Korea. That move would have been a huge escalation because it would have signaled to Kim Jong-un that we we're on the brink of an attack on North wow. Korea. Jim wow. Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, rushed to the White House in person to try to stop this. Uh, the order actually went out. In fact, um, Mark Esper, later Secretary of Defense, but at the time Secretary of the Army, heard about it in the middle of a meeting he was pulled out of uh, because they were so alarmed. Uh, so that was really a moment where as much as they didn't really think anything would come out of those talks with Kim Jong-un, they were embarrassed by Trump's quote unquote love affair language. Uh, the flip side was for many people, uh, that was infinitely preferable to get Trump talking than to have him threatening uh, an actual war with Korea. Just incredible. I want to go to the calls because we have a caller, Izzy in the Bronx, who had a question and wants to make a point about Trump and and national security. Hi there, Izzy. Hi, good morning. Um, Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I just, it was more of a comment. Uh, Listening to Trump and his rationalizations reminds me of a... (laughs) Uh, something that uh, Shalom Aleichem, the famous Yiddish uh, uh, humorist, wrote um, about somebody who asked his neighbor to return a pot. Mm. And the neighbor says, first of all, I never borrowed your pot. Secondly, I returned it already. And thirdly, it has a hole in it, so it's useless. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> the... the um, the problem is when uh, Trump said that um, his that he declassified those documents, that would mean they're they're available to anybody who wants to pick them up, you know, and read them. He still can't keep them. I think he still has to return them to the National Archives. But if they're declassified, then anyone can walk in and asked to, to see them. Uh, that's what a declassification means. Thank you very much for calling. I appreciate it. Um, Peter, Susan, I mean, 
it's an interesting point that like by declassifying with his thought process, which he said he was doing, it wasn't just didn't just mean he could keep them in his safe at Mar-a-Lago. It meant that anybody could access them. Do we know why he brought all these documents down to Florida with him? Like what was what was the point of all of this? And then what was in the documents that might have made him want to keep them? Right. I think you're right to put your finger on that. That's the most important question that hasn't been answered. All this other stuff is kind of a distraction, declassifying, not declassifying, special master. The the unanswered question is, what on earth was he doing with the documents in the first place? What did he think he was going to accomplish? We don't know that. There's lots of speculation, some more nefarious scenarios than others. Uh, you know, the, he, look, he liked to be, think that documents like that belonged to him, not the government, and that he could do with them what he will. He used to, in the Oval Office, as we write about in The Divider, he would just flash copies of his uh, letters from Kim Jong-un to basically any visitor who came along because he liked showing off. Mm. So we don't know if it's anything more, you know, is it just showing off or is there something more insidious? We don't know. And he hasn't answered. He hasn't even given a, an explanation, much less a plausible one. Uh, and so far, nobody has forced him to. Peter, you said he, he likes showing off. And I, I was curious uh, about your reporting in terms of, you know, obviously you spoke to so many people in the administration after the fact, and, and they relay anecdotes about what Trump said in the White House. How are you able to separate sort of just Trump's fantastical, just kind of spitballing, almost talking out loud that we've seen him do so many times in interviews, at rallies, almost like off the off the cuff, off the top of his head, um, with things that he was actually, you know, saying that were close to becoming reality. How do you distinguish between him, you know, just blabbering on in the Oval Office through his chief of staff to something that was almost be- going to become federal policy? You know, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, this is actually Trump's M.O. And I think during the presidency, at times, people discounted the seriousness of some of his more disruptive threats to things because it seemed like he must just be sort of rambling on or, you know, blabbing mm-hmm. out loud. But but what his advisors, in particular, very senior national security officials told us was that actually this was Trump's MO and that he would circle around and around and around particularly disruptive or problematic ideas, probing, 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 trying to make them happen, seeing, uh, you know, what the system would bear, seeing, you know, who he could get to break onto his side. And uh, that actually many of these things were genuine fixations that he really wanted to pursue, even if he wasn't able to execute them at the time. One example, I I think that is really an interesting one is um, the, uh, uh, Greenland. Remember uh, yes. that controversy in the summer of 2019? It seemed like one of those kind of Trump brain farts, right? You know, this like crazy uh, uh, spat he got in with Denmark when he publicly came out that he was interested in buying Greenland, right? The real estate deal of the century. Well, it wasn't just a kind of idle, weird Twitter fight. Uh, in fact, it turned out in our reporting that he had actually been pursuing this for years. Uh, there was an early cabinet meeting at which one of his officials was stunned. Like, what on earth was the president of the United States talking about? It was one of his billionaire buddies from New York, Ron Lauder, apparently, who got him interested in it. Ron Lauder, who then went to the national security advisor and said, well, the president, you know, has authorized me to pursue this. I'd like to be your secret envoy to Denmark. The uh, national security advisor at the time, John Bolton, had to find a way to politely decline that offer. Uh, But in fact, the whole national security apparatus then had to kind of jump and try to figure out how to turn this obviously non-starter of an idea into something. There were secret talks 
with the ambassador of Denmark, we were told by uh, sources who were very familiar with them. And, you know, this is an example of what you're talking about, that we might have dismissed it as the kind of public circus of Trump. But in fact, he's moving the U.S. government secretly towards some of these things. Uh, Wild. Fascinating. You know, it's interesting you talked about some of the advisors who are talking to him and and shocked by what he says. And your book describes some of the moral dilemmas faced by members of the Trump administration. Uh, John Kelly bought a book about the president's mental health to try to understand Trump's behavior better. Um, Kirsten Nielsen, the, the former Homeland Security Secretary, made this pact with Alex Azar, the, the Health and Human Services Secretary, uh, that they'd both quit if um, if one of uh, the Trump's more outrageous policies continued. Uh, c- can you describe some of that and, and describe that that pact as well uh, for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, there were, you're right to say that this is a, a through line to the book. Almost everybody we interviewed, and to repeat what Susan said, these are all interviews done after he left office. Nothing was held back while he was in office. And there's a reason why people were freer uh, to talk, I think, after he left office. But they all described this sort of like conundrum that they faced. Yes, they felt like working for him. These are not the true believers. These are the ones who are Republicans, but not true believers. Yes, they felt that he was in some way dangerous or reckless or or just difficult to work for. And yet they often told themselves, if I leave, then somebody who comes behind me will be even worse, be more willing to do the things that we think are not uh, wise or, or a good idea or even legal. So Kirsten Nielsen who became the public face of the family separation policy, even though she had privately uh, resisted it, uh, ends up having this suicide pact with Alex Azar, the Health and Human Services Secretary, in which they say, because the president, even after he reverses it, is still mulling how he can reimpose family separation. And they just basically say to themselves, look, if he does that, we're out of here. We're gonna, you and I are gonna jump together. It didn't happen, obviously, but there are other suicide pacts that have been formed over the years it didn't sort of materialize because in the end, everybody kept trying to convince themselves it was better to stay as long as they could. Self-justifying, yeah. yes, but also in some ways there probably was an argument to be said that the people who might come later would do things that they didn't find acceptable. Do you think some of those, you said people felt freer to talk and and I'm just wondering how much do you think the folks that you talked to were also trying to, you know, clean themselves up a little bit for the historical account and putting a more positive spin on uh, their role in the White House as sort of the, you know, the one thing standing between um, Trump and just sheer anarchy um, and that they were actually, you know, trying to do good in a bad situation. Do, do you think some of these folks are trying to just um, improve their status for history in, in a sense? Or were you able to suss that out when reporting this? Yeah, I mean, look, that is a very important question. There's no doubt that a certain amount of, uh, call it reputation washing, uh, is taking place. By the way, in this or after any administration, but certainly this one in particular, because there is uh, what John Kelly used to tell uh, uh, job applicants when he was discouraging them from working in the White House, uh, the stench uh, of Trump upon uh, many of them. And, you know, in fact, that is an important reminder. Uh, Kelly is an interesting example. Uh, As someone pointed out to us who actually did work in the Trump White House, there are no heroes here. And uh, that's the the dilemma in writing about this and and what makes it fascinating, of course, from a historical point of view is that many of the enablers were also uh, the resistors in the end. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, 
life is complicated, right? You know, this is not, uh, we tend to reduce sometimes public figures to, you know, all or nothing, right? They're either uh, all good guys or all bad guys. That's really not how it works. And, you know, first of all, the striking thing, right, is that the most damning testimony, of course, comes from those who surround Trump. These people are all Republicans for the most part, with the exception of some of the nonpartisan uh, military officers or, you know, government professionals who, who worked around him. Uh, largely, these are Republican officials who have emerged one by one, broken with Trump uh, or not even broken with him and yet produce damning testimony. And that's a very striking facet. Uh, it's Republicans themselves making these claims about Trump and they're well documented. The other point that I would make is that, you know, it's it's fascinating to see when people get off the bus because Donald Trump loyalty is obviously very one way with him. Uh, you know, he mm -hmm. breaks with almost everybody. One of his uh, top officials said there are two kinds of people <laughs> Donald Trump likes, uh, you know, those who used to work for them for him and those who will work for him. <laughs> uh, you know, it wasn't very much uh, when he talked about loyalty, he meant loyalty to him. But, you know, look, Bill Barr, fascinating character, right? He's he's one of Trump's biggest facilitators and enablers. Uh, many people, many lawyers believe that he tainted the Justice Department with his going along with uh, certain political uh, prosecutions, certain uh, politicization of the department, not to mention his framing of the Mueller report in the most favorable way possible to Donald Trump. And yet in the end, even Bill Barr has now publicly written a memoir critiquing Trump. He has uh, broken with Trump, unlike many right. of the other officials publicly after 2020 election, uh, said there was no widespread fraud to overturn it. So you know, is he a, is he a hero? No, of course not. Uh, but he's a very significant character and his uh, allegations about Trump, I think, are all the more uh, resonant because he was willing to serve Trump. Um, I, I know you guys have to uh, have to bounce in a couple minutes, but I, I had to ask about this. You, you know, you're co-authors, but you're also a married couple. And, and like other people, I'm sure I, I'm fascinated by the fact that Trump looms so large in all of our lives during his time running for president and living in the White House. I mean, people just found themselves consumed by him. Couples who did not talk politics before would just find themselves talking about politics because Trump was showing up constantly in all of our feeds everywhere we went. So then you guys are both covering this Trump beat. You're married and then you're writing a book together about him. How do you not talk about Trump 24-7 through the writing and promotion of this book? Like, How did you guys keep a, a life Trump balance, so to speak? How do you, why do you think we did? <laughs> I'm not clear that we did, but you're right. It is it is all consuming and it's it all consuming for, you know, an important reason. It's 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 uh, it's uh, it's a uh, you know, a lot of the Trump show it feels like entertainment. But the truth is, there's great consequence involved. So, yeah, we were willing to basically keep on doing it. We, we, we each of us spent four years covering the Trump White House for our different news organizations. And I think we kind of emerged from it afterwards thinking, well, we did as much as we could to investigate and turn up as much stories as we could. But there's still more to be told and mm -hmm. it shouldn't left to history not to tell it so we we found i think our own personal balance in trying to you know pursue this project uh but you're right i mean you sort of you know and you do any book you eat drink sleep live it and then right. this one in particular is, is, is all consuming. Well, that's right. Look, as a married couple, obviously, the good news is that we've emerged from doing this. We're still on speaking terms. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but uh, look, I, you know, I also think that this maybe sounds a little horny, but I really think this like. 
the Trump presidency is, is a big screaming crisis for American democracy, and the crisis is not over yet. And I think as journalists, it was a period, you know, for me, at least a return to first principles. Uh, you know, if you're not ready to suit up and, you know, just go all in on a story like this that has such consequences, uh, you know, this is why we became journalists. And yeah. uh, I can't imagine having more important uh, material or a, a more important story to tell. Thank you for bringing us back to the, to the gravity of this moment in history. Much appreciated. My, my guests have been Susan Glasser, New Yorker staff writer and CNN global affairs analyst, and Peter Baker, chief White House correspondent for The New York Times, MSM, and an MSNBC political analyst. Their new book, The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021, is available now. Peter, Susan, thanks so much for getting into this work and joining us today on The Brian Lair Show. Much appreciated. Hey, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.